0: Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and you are listening to a very special edition of Space the Nation.
1: And by very special edition, we mean an apology edition of Space the Nation, because (laughs) this is going to be a rerun. You're going to be listening to a, a episode that we have recorded last year, but it is going to start at least with an apology from Anna and I, because we recognize we have not been quite as regular as we should be on the podcast and
0: it's fresh content this is also the apology is fresh content the apology and and
1: the reasons for the apology also very fresh content and we know our listeners love to know about our (laughs) our lives and oh boy are we going to share we're going to share so much we're going to share so hard
0: (laughs) (laughs) don't make promises you can't fair enough So, yes, who goes first? Do we flip a coin to talk about what we've been up to since we haven't been making episodes?
1: Yeah, I think, you know what? I think you should go first because I do think, based on our listeners, they're going to want to know more about the murder kitten. (laughs) We're not going to save
0: the best for last.
1: Oh, we we could save the best for last. That's also true. That's fair. I'll just, I'll I'll talk about it. So,
0: my delays involve... True crime and the murder kitten,
1: <laughs> which <laughs> also actually... just that title alone, a <laughs> another podcast you need to do. True crime and the murder kitten, like you know, that's
0: not actually related to each other. <laughs> Fortunately, I suppose the first thing that has happened been, been interrupting my life of late is that the murder kitten got spayed, which is everyone spaying new to your pets, very important to do, very responsible. Yes, but. And so I took her, she's the first rescue I've had that's like a legit rescue, like came off of the street rescue than like <laughs> most of the other. <laughs> I'm sorry, she's
1: I confess I'm laughing at the idea of Molly being a street kitten, but yes, keep going. She's, <laughs> she's, tough. she's,
0: she's been she's a kitten to Hard Knocks, yes. Yeah, she's a, she's a Hard Knocks kitten. She's
1: a Hard Knocks kitten.
0: So she, I've mostly rescued from rescue organizations where getting them spayed and neutered is kind of part of the deal, Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So I didn't know how expensive it was to spay a cat. It's like $500. Yeah, it's
1: it's surgery, Anna. I mean, that's not surprising. It's surgery. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's like legit surgery. It's surgery, and, and it's none so of this,
1: of course, is insured. So yeah, yeah.
0: Right. I mean, I mean, I have pet insurance for her, but they don't cover that kind of thing. They, they only cover like...
1: <laughs> of course not. Why would insurance cover a medical procedure that is it's necessary? It's American yes.
0: insurance. Pet insurance is still American insurance. There we go.
1: Exactly. Yes.
0: <laughs> what we need is nationalized pet insurance, Dan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Finally, Biden care. I you know I think that's going to be the second term initiative.
0: Protect major. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. Like, so is a major the one he still has, or is the major the one that bit the secret service agents? I don't. I remember. thought the answer
1: was both, which is he still has major, but like major is in Delaware because he keeps biting people.
0: Right, only secret service agents. So, oh, okay. you know, A C B.
1: What does A C B mean? What is <laughs>
0: all cops are bad? Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> so, Murder Kitten, I was looking for a low cost spay alternative, and there is one. It's actually a really great program here in Austin, Emancipet. They spay and neuter, and do preventative care, low cost, and they also do microchips. And Murder Kitten needed a microchip, so so I went I, I there. Just, hold on.
1: Mo- this means Molly is low jacks, basically. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Molly has low jacked. Okay, All my pets have it.
1: been low jacked. Got it. No, it's totally fair. I get it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I took her in, and the way that it's low cross is it's kind of assembly line, because they're actually pretty straightforward surgeries. Right. So you, like, there's, you wait in line in the morning, drop off your pet, and then pick up in the afternoon.
1: <laughs> that's, that's good to know, because I'm not going to lie, I did have in my mind a Bugs Bunny cartoon of how it would be the assembly line. Surgery. Right, right. This is better.
0: So I go to pick her up in the afternoon, and they hand me her and her carrier, and she's, she's a little, she's awake. Mm-hmm. And they say to me, she's going to be groggy for a little bit because of the anesthesia. Just, you know, but that's good because she's still that that incision is fresh. Mm-hmm. Try to keep her from messing with it. And of course, try to keep her from jumping around or doing any strenuous play for seven days. And I was like,
1: have they met Molly? <laughs> I, was
0: like, I was like, okay. I'll give it a shot, and I, I asked him, I was like, do you have any sedatives, <laughs> and they said, it's not that hard, just put her in a small room somewhere, and I'm like, okay, and so then I take her home, and she turns out to have what is an adverse reaction to the anesthesia, because she's the murder kitten, you know, she, yes. she has, it has to be her, and it's not adverse in a bad way, well, sort of bad, what happened is it made her manic, And she tore around the house. Like, she, I I was up with her from five in the afternoon when I got her to like 2 a.m. in the morning. I was on off the phone with an on call, like, vet
1: tech. Wow.
0: She, she split her stitches open immediately. Yeah.
1: That'd be yes she's literally well, and I should
0: say yeah. the, the glue like the stitches are actually interior and they're hard to bust open but the glue is like the they're just gluing the dermis together oh, okay. but she split it open immediately it's like bleeding she I, I can't catch her they say put her in a small room like a bathroom and I put her in the small room in the bathroom and she just like I can hear her like banging herself against <laughs> the door god this so sounds like a I horror movie so I go in with her, and then, uh-huh. of course, while I'm with her, she figures out, like, to jump up. She climbs the shower curtain, and she, like, jumps up on... The- She's just unstoppable. And I'm, like, sending pictures to the vet tech. I'm, the vet tech gives me her, her personal cell phone number.
1: <laughs> oh, that's good. Because that's a good to- vet tech.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a good vet tech, but we're trying to decide whether to take her to the emergency room. Because right. I call all of the emergency room, pet emergency rooms in Austin are full. I would have to drive two hours
1: to uh, leander
0: texas oh god to get her into an emergency so room and it's this, already two in the morning this
1: does raise an interesting question of like was there like a particular ev- event that caused all the pet emergency rooms to be fully occupied that night i'm just no I'm just i mean that's an interesting here.
0: question yeah. i think there's just not a lot of them
1: yeah that, and
0: okay. and it takes time like you know mm-hmm. p- pets can't tell you what's wrong right i've actually had to take my ex-husband and his cat leia eight. Or we thought might have eaten a lily leaf, and lilies are incredibly toxic to cats. Mm. So we wound up having to take her to get her stomach pumped just on the off chance that she'd right. ingested a lily. Yeah. And that took forever. I'm sure, yes. And and they jumped her to the head of the line because it, it possible would have been death toxic. experience. Yeah, exactly. Right. So and so the vet tech we're trying to keep her from going to the emergency room. So finally she's like, you know what? She's already torn open the incision. <laughs> like just i mean she's like you should go to bed and maybe if you go to bed she'll quiet down <laughs> and i'm like you don't have you met time, molly I don't understand <laughs> I, after all like i've been on the phone with you for like in the middle of the night like for hours and you don't understand but i did go to bed because i needed to sleep right get up in the morning i don't know if she slept or not but take her back to the low-cost place where they feel terror like they're incredibly apologetic Mm -hmm. and want to help but what happens is i meet with a different vet tech and the vet tech's like oh what i'll do is put a lot of glue on that incision and she just like squirts surgical glue like all over molly's belly
1: okay
0: and i kind of feel like i'm not sure if that i don't know that i have this
1: image mental image of molly (laughs) saying challenge accepted
0: (laughs) Yeah, and then they give me some, they give me a a sedative for her, too. okay. So I go home, and it's, she takes, I get the first pill down her throat, because she doesn't know what's happening. Great. And she's actually kind of sedated for a while. And then she wakes up a few hours later, and it's worse, because what turns out is that that surgical glue itches like crazy. So she's like running and hiding and like doing. The, and, oh, and also, and so I forgot in all this time too, I put a cone on her head and she got out of that. <laughs> I put her in a tube sock and she got out of that. I bought a baby onesie and it took her like five minutes to get out of that. Are
1: and there any so, pictures of her in the baby onesie? I got to admit, I'm curious. No, she got out long. of it too fast. Yeah, okay, it was ahead.
0: like, it, it was just anyway. So she's just running and jumping. And so I go to my regular vet. Mm-hmm. And take her in. And also, the the wound does not look good.
1: Right. Right. Well, which makes sense. I mean, she's ripped the glue off once. She's probably tried to rip it off again. So I
0: go to the regular vet, and the vet's like, that's a lot of surgical glue. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I say, yeah, that's right. They they figured she was running and jumping a lot, so, you know, did that. And she said, well, I'm not going to do anything. And what I think we should do is we'll give you more sedatives. And... Or give you antibiotics and then you just have to keep checking and if it gets worse because she because she the vet said like it seems like the efforts to make her calm or to get her you know put her in a onesie or whatever mm-hmm. seem to have backfired right. and made it worse and i was like yes yes because like the contortions she did to get out of the onesie mm-hmm. i should have done a movie but i was just like trying to get her to It was not a performance. I was just trying to get her to wear it. Like, she was like up on her hind legs, like almost like a human would pull a shirt off, you know, like tucking her paws in it. Oh, God. (laughs) So the vet's finally like, just let Molly be Molly. Um, It's really good advice for all of us, frankly. So the next part of the story, though, is they gave me gabapentin in liquid form for her. And they gave me like very. She's not very big, and so they gave me a dose of like. I'm not even going to tell you what the dose was because then it'll sound really bad. What happened next? Because what happened next is, I gave her the dose, and she just tore around the house.
1: So again, so like, another thing that was supposed to be a sedative causes the opposite right. reaction. So I'm like, well, I'm gonna.
0: Uh, well, I'm like, well, I'm gonna try to give her another dose. <laughs> I looked it up. Gabapentin is not fatal. Good to cat. What's more toxic to them is the preservatives. In that the, are in the
1: thing rather than the gathering. They're time. in the thing. And okay. that
0: would, you'd have to like really.
1: Okay. So in other words, clearly, even though you were trying to sedate the cat, you were not in any way trying to harm the cat and harm, could not harm have harmed her. the right. cat.
0: But yes. I just basically kept giving.
1: <laughs> and this still wasn't having an effect?
0: It mean, finally, finally, oh, okay. finally, finally, she she slept. And that was like, that was my week was like chasing her around And the on house. the seventh
1: day. Molly the finally day she slept, slept.
0: <laughs> and the only other part of the story that's worth telling. She and she's fine now. I actually posted on Instagram, Instagram, a picture of her, like the incision. I was tempted to post a picture of the incision at one point because it was just so it was it was scary. It was gnarly. Like, <laughs> it was gnarly, but now it just looks like a tiny little scab. Okay. So she's fine. She's back to murdering. But the other part of the story is at one point during all the toing and froing from the vet. I'm on my way to go pick her up and I got into a very minor car accident which Texas has laws about insurance it's like it's minor for everyone involved but like I'm you know I have a stupid expensive car and like I was really upset about it and
1: she was listener. she called me right after the the car accident I recall this I,
0: I was super upset and it just was like another thing on top of everything else you know And I was thinking about not going through insurance because I was worried about the rates that I, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, I finally went through insurance and I was doing the computer chat with the claims person.
2: Yeah.
0: And she was like, well, this is your fault. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I know. (laughs) Like, I was merging and I know the one who merges, it's that's automatically yeah, yeah. your fault she, she was in my blind spot the other car was like i drive a suv and the other car was like a tiny little audi oh no and so she was be- she wasn't just in my blind spot she was below she my was line below your
1: line yeah she would you wouldn't have looked there or, or yeah right yeah.
0: so and i did a lot of damage to her car I'm sorry,
1: Anna. <laughs>
0: like she's fine but and i just swiped it but mm-hmm. so the claims adjuster is like it is your fault and i said well i know this isn't gonna change anything but I feel like you should know that I was on my way to pick up my cat from the vet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did it change anything?
0: And she said, is she okay? And I said, yes, she is. And she said, well, cars can always be repaired. So I'm glad uh, your cat's okay. You know okay. what? That's
1: a, that's a good perspective to have.
0: And then when I sent in the pictures of my car. Right. I included a picture of Molly.
1: <laughs> well done, Anna. <laughs> Maybe if you're lucky, the insurance claim adjuster will be like... The underwriters
0: the, will will have mercy on me. Well,
1: I was thinking they, they'll be like Mr. Incredible, you know, like they'll tell and, you how to... And
0: that's yeah. not the true crime part of it. That's just the murder kitten part of it. Wow. The true crime part of it, I, I cannot really talk about, as Dan knows. Oh, yes. but, I,
1: it's true, listeners. I do know what she's referring to, but I too am sworn to secrecy about this.
0: But it's exciting. It's something that is involving, like, going to LA, <laughs> and I'm getting kind of a ground level view of how some of the true crime media works mm-hmm. and it's been fascinating it cool. has been really really interesting i don't i i think the whole thing i mean eventually it'll you know everyone will figure out what i'm talking about but i mean it's super competitive that's one of the reasons why i can't talk about it
1: it's super competitive Is, meaning like your what the whatever it is you are doing is competing with many other things or are you worried that someone's going to... And the number
0: of stories that people want to do, there's only a limited number of like stories that fit the parameters of good true crime fodder.
1: Let me put it this way. Knowing the one that you are actually doing, I don't think you're going to have a problem in that category. And again, I do apologize to listeners for not giving more information about this.
0: But people, this is teasing. This is just teaser stuff. People on the edge of their seats for everything. Yeah, so I was in LA over the weekend dealing with this crazy, the craziness of this true crime commu- community culture culture, true mm-hmm. crime culture.
1: Yes, fair enough. And
0: then thus I didn't take my laptop, and we didn't get stuff posted, and all of that. Dan, now your turn.
1: Okay, so listeners, as you probably could tell, Anna's had has had a lot going on. Some of it is good. Some of it, you know, much drama. Um, I am just going to give all the listeners free dispensation to hate me after I explain why I have not been able to record much. And the reason is is because, first of all, I'm talking to you from London. And this is the third international trip I've taken in the last three
0: weeks.
1: Okay, So, after- so you
0: can't even do the brag joke because yeah. you're just bragging. I'm
1: just bragging. No, it's not <laughs> – I, I, like i I've, I've given up on the humble brag thing or whatever. Like This is just clearly bragging. Um, and, and I will explain why. So so in reverse order, right now I'm in London because uh, I co-edited a special issue of a journal, International Affairs. Listeners might be amused because the title of the journal is called uh, – the special issue is International Relations, the How Not To Guide. So I'm really – Enjoying this. Anyway, we're doing a rollout event at Chatham House. Uh, is
0: Trump involved? <laughs> Trump <laughs> that's that's like preference.
1: basic. We don't even need to go. you know <laughs> okay.
0: more we, complicated issues. It's, more know, it's not the whole The whole the journal is not just a picture of Trump. No, let me let me put it this way. My, <laughs>
1: so my contribution was an essay called "How Not to Sanction." About how when sanctions go wrong, and so like there's.
0: So it has a really sexy title, but it is actually an academic journal. Exactly,
1: kind of which that's okay. how I want you to think of my work, <laughs> Anna. By the way, is sexy, but nonetheless substantive. That's actually you know that's that's the way I go. That's the way it goes. <laughs> last week I was in Montreal because the American Political Science Association had their annual meeting, which is often a. Last year was a rather pathetic deal, but this was actually a real conference. I was presenting. Conferences, or you know. It's tough to sort of take time out to do this. Those two are the minor trips. Let me now roll out the major trip, and this is the one I am not going to apologize for. I am going to brag the fuck out of this one, which is I took my wife to French Polynesia for our 25th wedding anniversary slash empty nest celebration of the children no longer living in the house. So we flew to Papiete Tahiti. We stayed in one of those kick-ass overwater bungalows on the water for three days, then we got on a sailboat, um, like a cruise ship, a a sailboat, and went from Tahiti to all of the major islands in the French Polynesia, including like Morea and Raiatea and Bora Bora and so forth, and then came back to Tahiti and then left. This is easily like the most expensive thing I will ever probably do in terms of like personal travel, and I have zero regrets about this. It was a fabulously expensive trip, and yet you know, I know Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s fans will will always talk about how Tahiti is a magical place. You know what? It really is a fucking magical place, okay? It's just amazing. It was the kind of place where I would actually get up early to watch the sunrise, you know, which is not something I am normally – I am not a let's get up and watch the sunrise kind of dude. But, like, in this case, I would do it because the light was incredible.
0: Dan, I, I, have, I have a question. Yes. It's of personal interest. Okay. What SPF did you use?
1: <laughs> I think I used <laughs> SPF like seventy-five thousand. No, I used SPF.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, like it's been a while since I've seen you in person, mm. but I think we share <laughs> a certain skin tone. Right. That... <laughs> I
1: actually, I actually used <laughs> SPF. I think thirty-five. But what here was the the nice thing, and I could tell we had done this vacation right, which was at the very end of the trip, I had a massage. And the masseuse said, "You are not sunburned in the slightest. Like I had a sun, I had a tan, I was dark, but like I was not sunburned." And I was like, "I, you know, that that's winning as far as I'm concerned in terms of the trip." All
0: right, well then you actually tan, but yeah, exactly. tan slowly, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I was more tan two weeks ago than I am now. Is the way I would put it. Yeah. Also, I'm not I, I, honestly honest, seeing me in a hotel light that I would describe as a disturbingly one. F- porn <laughs> set was what I was going to say, but yes, it's not the best lighting.
0: Um, <laughs> no, I mean, not, I have shitty lighting, too. Yes, yes. I <laughs> just... Yeah, backstory, so I obviously have even more fair skin, right. and I was born in Puerto Rico.
1: Oh, I don't think
0: I knew that. My dad yeah. was teaching there, so I spent the first few years of my life in Puerto Rico, okay. and actually used to speak Spanish fluently, one of those kid Aww. things. And there's a, there's actually a word for that, like when you grow up fluently and then lose one of the languages, oh. but I can't think of it. Okay. And I still have, like, I took Spanish in school, and I can still speak it better than most
1: people that took it in school. might come in handy in Texas, but still. Oh, yeah.
0: No, it's incredibly handy. And also I have a really good accent, which confuses people.
1: I have this problem with French. Because, no, no, no. I lived in Toronto when I was nine years old, and we learned French. You have to learn French in Canada from from third grade on. And, in fact, the reason I bring this up is that when I was in French Polynesia, I occasionally had to trot out the French that I remembered, I was pretty good, but of course I've forgotten a lot about it. But I have a decent accent, and so people kept expecting me to speak French better than I actually did.
0: I will have my interaction with usually, you know, someone who's doing something for me. Right. And I will do a pretty good job maybe explaining what I want, because mm-hmm. sometimes I go ahead and look up stuff because I want to be as helpful as I can. Mm-hmm. And so I'll say that, and then they'll just start speaking rapid Spanish at me.
1: Right, and that's where you're like, nope, lost it, lost it. I, that's how I am with French. Like, there are certain interactions I can do in French without any problems whatsoever. But the moment we go off script or what I, off of what I'm expecting, I'm like, oh, boy, no, no, no.
0: And I was at Los Giento, sorry, yep. like, no, yes. <laughs> just you you've yeah. ex- you've ex- exhausted the extent of my Spanish. <laughs> um, but so I was born in Puerto Rico and I obviously have very fair skin. And also, um, I have some, uh, pre-existing birthmarks, which are like, you know, skin cancer wise, supposed to, you know, keep an eye on them. Right. So I, my very first memories in life are being sl- slathered with sunscreen. <laughs> And in the early 1970s, mm-hmm. sunscreen was not something that everybody –
1: Honestly, props to your parents for this. That, that is actually forward thinking because by the time we had kids, like we had – we might have had the most laid back, you know, pediatrician ever. And the one thing he was manic – not manic about but like very emphatic about was always put sunscreen on your kids. Um,
0: well, they put sunscreen on me. We're very diligent about it. I have inherited that. My friends now make fun of me because I get paranoid about being sunburned. Nope, don't let like, them I tease just, you on this. Like,
1: You're absolutely right about this. I can't. Yeah.
0: If I get a little pink, I'm like, oh, we're out. I'm out. I mean, I like going to the beach. I like going, yeah. you know, but I just wear a big hat. Right. <laughs> and wear I sunscreen. But one of the reasons why I think that I am so diligent about it is my dad, the actuary, did one time say to me... You only get one face.
1: Wow. <laughs> okay, now I want to do face off for the po- for for at some point. But that's oh, well, we should. But yeah. like
0: th- telling that to like a preteen girl, like
1: oh yeah, that's true. That'll. that'll I'm going to
0: remember to put sunscreen. on.
1: It works, That's good parenting. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say.
0: My dad's a little bit of a drastic guy. <laughs> uh, so we should we should mention that we're introducing Dune. Oh my God, Dan, we accidentally have a good segue.
1: We do. Oh yes. Yes, we do. You actually—I didn't
0: plan this. I wish I could. I would would tell Karen to go back and edit this, and you could we could edit back to the SPF conversation and be like, <laughs> "Speaking of SPF, that's right." How about those fremen?
1: Oh yeah, let me tell you, I was wearing a still suit the whole time in Polynesia, and those things are comfortable.
0: <laughs> Recycling all your wastewater. Yes, yes. Um, yes. I find I one of the things I like about the book, by the way. Mm-hmm. Is that that's just so matter of fact, like it doesn't spend a lot of time on the whole like they're drinking your own urine thing because it is true. Like that would just be a thing you had to do. Right.
1: It wouldn't be normatively like disgusting or anything because it's the only way you could survive. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And no one makes a big deal about it. The entire like it's just oh, yep, this is what we got to do. So we're introducing the book discussion. Yes, that's correct. That we had, Mm -hmm. which I recall being both of us were. I, I don't was make I I was somewhat surprised by how much I liked it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think that would that would recover my reaction. Yeah, I think
1: I liked it a lot. If I remember, in, in no small yeah. part because Frank, the issues that he touches on in the book, you know, a book written in 1965. Seemed to me remarkably ahead of its time, which is in some ways the best example of science fiction. So,
0: and he turns out to be a super interesting guy himself. I remember we talked a little bit about his backstory.
1: Yes, Yes. he he does hit his crank phase, but but let's put it this way: we've read a lot of canon fodder for this podcast, and that might actually be the canon fodder choice we've made that I think I like the most.
0: Yeah, I think so too. Oh, I mean, did we do? We did the Ursula K. Le Guin. We did Ursula K. Le Guin.
1: We did the Left Hand of Darkness. That's true. Um,
0: Left-Handed Darkness was very good and very good in a way that if you haven't already, I would encourage listeners to go back and, and, and listen to it because I I had not read it before we did it. And my feeling about it was it was somehow like a PC thing, like it was like crunchy yeah. feminism. And it's not. No, it's it's not. actually really interesting examination yeah. of not just gender, but like interpersonal
1: relationships, Right. right? Right, and the other good so, one that I did, well, I, I guess this was Fodder We did uh, uh, *Kindred* by Octavia Butler, which I think I is think We
0: did that as cannon Fodder I don't think we, we did it,
1: it as Fodder but that is—leave That is the book that I have read for the two of us. That is that will stay with me the longest, hands down. Um, that is. A, yeah, is that's a,
0: a. It was a good one, and also yeah. that's the one I think you recommended your wife read, right? That is true.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Has good. she read it? She has, and she also was sort of shattered by it. So yeah. 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 So
0: this. Uh, rev- it, this discussion is not shattering. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, I think, a pretty... It, Dune, in some ways, is like the herb book for yeah. this podcast. I agree.
1: Yes, yes. It's it the is, alien it of the novels, perfect. as it were.
0: It is the alien of <laughs> no, <we'll> novels.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and I think that without further ado, unless you have anything to add besides another apology...
1: We will apologize, and we do promise next week we are going to be talking about Sandman. So we will be, you know, back to do content and we've, we've adjusted our schedule. So don't worry. We're not, this will in no way interfere with Butler Vember. I just want to yeah. assure listeners of that. We are very pumped for Butler Vember.
0: I am very pumped for Butler Vember. And then we also have cold sci-fi winter coming, yeah, I think that's in January.
1: Yes, that's true. And And we've talked tentatively about something for April that we – I don't want to say out loud because we – who knows what will happen, but we've we've talked about something.
0: Yeah. We have some tricks up our sleeve. Mm -hmm. Uh, People know this, but this is not – this is definitively not our day job. This is something we do for love. And we're coming up on two years?
1: Oh, I – yes. I believe that's correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we started in December of 2020, right? Is that when we did? Yes, yeah. that's what we did. Oh, wow. We'll have to do something special yeah. for the two-year anniversary.
0: We yeah. should. We should. Uh, okay. We'll take suggestions for that. Exactly. People can send an email or say something in the Discord. Uh, we would, Maybe we'll do a special, some kind of just special episode. Yeah, we could
1: do that. Yeah. But until then, keep this channel open for more, and welcome to the encore version of Dune the Book.
0: Enjoy. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I, for one, am shocked that a centuries long
1: eugenics project didn't go as planned. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and Anna, the lack of coffee is the real mind killer.
0: This is Space the Nation, where we talk about science fiction through the lens of politics and culture. We have day jobs doing that stuff, and, and this is not our day job, but we're using our day jobs, right, Dan?
1: We are. We're exploiting it. This is our side hustle in which we take our day jobs and have a lot more fun with it. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And speaking of fun, we've been doing some real downers lately, and we had decided together to embark on Hot Sci-Fi Summer. And I have decided we're going to do like a belated uh, Pride Month with that because I think we just haven't done enough fun queer stuff. So we are focusing on things that are upbeat or uplifting or fun in some way. And I am looking for the bonus contribution of maybe, you know, getting some queer folks represented. I'm very excited that one of the books that hits all of those marks is Victory's Greater Than Death. And we are going to do a special episode interviewing the author, Charlie Jane Anders. And then coming right up, we're going to have fun in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Our, Our alternate identity is in fact a Marvel Stan account.
1: (laughs) This is true. There might even be cosplay involved. Who knows? But that said, if you as the listener feel like, you know, you want things in addition to those topics well you know what the best way for that to happen is it is for you to become a patron because if we get 250 patrons we will have another patron only episode in which the topic will be chosen by the patrons themselves we just did our previous one which we talked about 28 days later and so an excellent reason to become a patron for as little as three dollars a month is that you get to choose what we're going to talk about next hopefully
0: there are other benefits Dan can you can you tell me what the other benefits are
1: the other benefits are at, at higher levels of uh, patronage you get certain uh, excellent kinds of swag and furthermore there is a discord account that is extremely lively um, it's a nice group of that people someday
0: Dan will visit
1: <laughs> I have visited <laughs> but I clearly I I I'm like the I like the distant neighbor from Canada that occasionally <laughs> pops out or like the far-flung relative from Canada but Anna is a much more robust participant in the discord but more importantly I think the participants of the Discord are robust friends of each other, and so it's a nice little community, and you can potentially be a part of it.
0: Yep. And also, you get episodes early, if that's something that you're into. Uh, Today, mm -hmm. we are talking about a a much-requested source material. It, It is the book Dune by Frank Herbert.
1: Yeah, so this is a canon fodder episode, to be clear.
0: Yes, and
1: that it, you know, so we canon fodder meaning we are going to take a classic work of science fiction and subject it to a modern uh, analysis and determine whether or not it really still belongs in the canon, or is it in fact really more fodder now?
0: And Dan, why did you think we should do this as canon fodder? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I think there are there are multiple reasons for me as someone who had not read the book, frankly, before doing this episode. First, how can I resist a novel that that contains multiple appendices? to Explain the world building behind the novel. So, like when I first got this book, you know, I was starting to flip through it and I was uh, looking at the table of contents, and I was first reaction was, Oh my, that's a lot of pages for this book. And then the second was, Four appendices? Four? Oh yeah. And that's uh, a glossary? <laughs> Cartographic notes? Oh yes. <laughs> Color me soul. That is an academic stream. And then also, of course, you know, no one can stand athwart the Timothy Chalamet engine and and declare stop. That's not how life works. So we are aware that there is a a Denis Villeneuve uh, film starring Timothy Chalamet coming out, uh, I believe, in October. I wanted to be prepared for that. I wanted to, you know, actually have read the book as well as, and we will have in a future episode uh, go over, actually a future Schlock and Odd episode, I believe, go over the David Lynch version of Dune that was filmed in 1984.
0: And uh, Schlock or Awe may be somewhat self explanatory, I guess. It's the cousin.
1: It's a to, doppelganger. As it it's, were.
0: A, it's a. It's to Cannon Fodder. And as far as I, why I think Dune should be on a Cannon Fodder episode, I mean, come on, it is
1: Dune. It's fucking Dune. It's man. Dune. I mean, yes, yes. Like, I hadn't read it, but I knew that it was a really goddamn important novel. So, right. yes, this is something obvious. All right, Anna, and let's get to the story behind the story for Frank Herbert's Dune.
0: I will apologize in advance to our (laughs) listeners, although some of you have said you want long episodes, so (laughs) this might be a long episode. There is a lot of story behind the story here, both um, with a specific book, Dune, and with Frank Herbert, who is a fascinating character. (laughs) I'm going to try to stick to the story behind the book, Dune. Mm -hmm. I was pleased and amused to find out that it is based on his experience doing research for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is correct. On Dan.
1: I believe it was like the sand dunes in Oregon. Dunes. Yes, yes, Yes. exactly. Yes, yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And not just sand dunes, but using non-native grasses to fortify those dunes. Mm -hmm. Paul is loosely based on JFK, believe it or not. The whole book owes a lot to a book called The Sabers of Paradise, which is a fictionalized account of the Caucasian uprising against the Russians, which I presume you could tell us more about if you thought about it a bit. No? Yes, not I could. Not a famous uprising? I'm not
1: going to lie. Caucasian threw me for a second. Threw you? And I realized, yes. Oh, you mean the Caucasus. Okay, yes, that yes. makes sense. Yes, totally yes, fair. Yes, I mean the yeah.
0: Caucasus. It threw me too. And since this book does have a lot of eugenics in it, at yeah. first I was like, oh, well, this Ooh. explains a lot. But, but no, no, they
1: mean Caucasian in a different way. That's fair. Yes. Okay, yep
0: That book was written by a female uh, British travel writer named Leslie Blanche. It's supposed to be very good. And it borrows just a lot of nomenclature and also some of the sayings that hmm. uh, this woman found oh, when she was traveling, uh-huh. like uh, k- about the killing with the tip of the knife versus the blade. Like that's apparently a Caucasian saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and again, I'm going to say that the whole podcast could be about Herbert. Or I have
1: vetoed that decision by <laughs> Anna. I just want to be very clear about that. So listeners, if you're upset about that, it, that's on me.
0: It's all It's all Dan. Yeah. So his politics are unusual <laughs> let's say uh, and evolving his,
1: they, they weren't they weren't constant it would be a safe they so.
0: were uh, yes they, they were evolving and always a bit yeah unexpected yep. let's say
1: mm-hmm.
0: he was born to the children which is to say his grandparents were card-carrying socialists mm-hmm. who helped found a socialist commune in washington state which is where he is from mm-hmm. and Instead of making him a socialist, this sort of turned him into a very libertarian kind of live off the land kind of guy. He had a lot of close experiences with the indigenous uh, people of that area and knew a lot about, you know, camping, living off the land, et cetera, et cetera. And just became incredibly anti-government, which is sort of funny that he was working for the Department of Agriculture when he came up with this idea. But he hated the government, hated taxes, hated social welfare programs. And it sounds like that was sort of a little bit in his life all the time and just got more and more vehement about it. Uh, He was an NRA member and a Reagan supporter. And... There's a place where the books and his life intersect in a funny way, which is the reason why the tail end of the series uh, books kind of suck (laughs) is that he was writing them very quickly in order to pay back taxes because he had refused to pay taxes for many years. People ask about his politics all the time online. If you Google Frank Herbert politics, there's a lot of, like, (laughs) Reddit discussions about it, and there's essays about it. And I honestly think it's really hard to pin him down. Um, The
1: impression I got, and this will come up also when we talk about the book itself, is that there's a Rorschach test to this book in that it is sufficiently ambiguous in some ways. and, And Frank Herbert's life is sufficiently ambiguous that you can implant or present any sort of version of it that you want I guess
0: yeah that's a good take because I think he just wasn't consistent he was human right which is to say he wasn't consistent but he was inconsistent in a very interesting way I would say
1: i also like i have to admit i i now kind of want to see the alternative version of parks and Rec, where nick <laughs> offerman's character is in fact frank herbert or like winds up pursuing <laughs> the frank herbert arc because you basically described nick off I, I can't oh, remember well, name, nick, well
0: actually to add to that yeah uh, for a brief moment in his life frank herbert was a republican speechwriter
2: there you
0: go a, a speechwriter to a republican senator mm-hmm. which i want to know about those speeches because like given <laughs> paul's oration
1: i like, try to picture a senator now saying, <laughs> fear, fear is the mind killer. You know.
0: <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then his, as far as his personal politics, go, I'm going to just two quotes, which I liked. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them, I vote against whoever's in office, hmm. which is nice and consistent. And then his idea for a perfect political program would be to select 13 people at random and give them all the power they need. And then they have to leave after a year. And his thinking behind that is that, well, any mistakes they make, they only last a year, which is a weird thing for a guy interested in ecology to say, by the way.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry, as a political scientist, I'm just going to veto this. It's a really dumbass idea and would lead to massive problems. I, I,
0: I going, it doesn't yeah. make any sense at all, yeah. really, except for, I don't think, yeah, he's it's funny. He put a lot more thought into the plot of his novels in, over, you know, mm-hmm. thinking through like what this would look like. You know.
1: I mean, to be fair, like you know, it's the classic Marx thing, right? Where like really good, interesting writers are often really good at criticizing other things rather than creating things of their own.
0: Yeah, and as we'll get into further, I yeah. think Dune is a kind of brilliant set of criticisms. Yeah. But yeah, as a program, not so much. Right. So Dan, would you like to hear why we, we put this up for cannon fodder? Or actually, I take that back. Dan, why don't you tell me why you think this should be up for Canon fodder?
1: I mean, it should be up for Canon fodder because obviously, the canon part will not be contested. We will be talking about the legacy of, of Dune in a whole variety of different ways. But also, you know,
0: it's just... it's There's um, some stuff in it that makes you cringe, yeah, maybe. That's,
1: well, <laughs> I think we we sort of have to... We have to talk about the plot in order to really talk about the things that are potentially problematic. But it's not like... It's not like I read this without wincing once or twice. But I I, I will also, you know, to preview, I winced far less than I was expecting, to be honest.
0: Well, I'm going to try to You know, there are some spoilers in the discussion of why this is canon or fodder, but I I will proceed again There's too much to talk about here. So I'll try just to hit the highlights The main criticism that you find is that it's a fetishization of imperialism and fascism and fanaticism and eugenics And I will say Richard Spencer is on record as saying this is one of his favorite (laughs) books.
1: So I, I, this is one. I'm not. I saying, no, 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 I'm saying. I want to
0: make clear. I'm not saying that's a
1: good reason.
0: Yeah, like th- but that I have is, to those say, are common reasons. No, 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 no I
1: know. And this is one criticize. of the things that drives me batty. Which is like a, a, a common criticism of a work is, oh yeah, well this person you really don't like loves that book, and I'm like, that's not a valid reason. Like generally, good books are going to have fans, you know, who are going to be people you admire, and also fans that you like don't want to have anything to do with. And I don't think that's a. It's not a great reason. It's disturbing. Yeah, okay. I grant you that.
0: Uh, speaking of fans, you don't want to have anything to do with Elon Musk. Also a big fan of this book, <laughs> and I thought of him because one of the funnier criticisms I read of the book was that uh, Paul is the ultimate neoliberal tech mogul, talking revolution while imposing hierarchy, ruthless in pursuit of new markets, boasting boasting of disruption and creative destruction. That does sound like tech mogulies. It so. does.
1: It just doesn't sound like Paul, but that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah, yeah.
0: Rorschach test, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then the stuff that's actually more resonant for me mm-hmm. is the stuff that's just you could say merely cringy, yeah. but it's super cringy, which is the essentialization of of gender and mm-hmm. um, fat uh, phobia. <laughs> which I will say did not, of course, because it's something that I think this whole culture has been on a journey on, mm-hmm. you know, for many years to kind of realize like how much we talk about fatness as a character defect
1: yeah
0: or as a character trope yeah yeah, or as a character trope i did not notice that as a particular i was like oh yeah he's gross you know (laughs) when i was 15 sure (laughs) the baron is terrible and gross and stay away from him and of course the other thing about the baron is that he's portrayed as gay and Mm -hmm. it's sort of a trope to have like the villainous gay character and i noticed also that almost any character that is even partway evil (laughs) in this book is uh, described as being effeminate so they more-
1: always speak in a high-pitched voice. Yeah. yeah.
0: And then, of course, like Herbert was a crank, and that's another reason why you might knock it off. I will say there's many good defense mm-hmm. of, of this book as well. I think what we have here is what I will refer to as the Starship Troopers problem, <laughs> which is to say that you have a, a, a work that is a criticism of something abhorrent, uh-huh. which is to say imperialism, fascism, I would say even consumerism, and it's such yeah. a well-done satire slash critique that it feels almost like an homage Mm -hmm. that's the problem i think with this book and and it later books make very clear that herbert intends paul to be a monster that he is not in fact a hero so there's that and then i found a couple of really funny um very postmodern um essays about dune one of which argued against it being a white savior narrative because it argues that the fremen are not white which i'd Okay. No, you know. that that
1: I, that was true. That was something I definitely inferred from reading. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah,
0: yeah you know, I it, I think it is it maybe says more about whiteness than anything else that we assume. Many times people would assume that they are white because they're not described as anything, but really. Mm. I mean, they've tan.
1: Well, it's know? also the eyes. Like the most common the, the the thing that stands out about the Freeman is the fact that their eyes right. are all blue. Yeah.
0: Right. And also that Paul is not actually a white savior, which is actually That might be the strongest evidence that it's not a white savior (laughs) narrative because he doesn't actually save
1: them, you know? (laughs) Yeah, although part of the problem here, I think, and we'll talk about this later, is that it's it's a question of whether you we're talking about dune the novel and then stop there or right. then all everything that right. happens you know all the successive novels it's very hard
0: to separate them but yeah. the, the people that argue that the fremen have agency mm-hmm. i mean that's their main argument is that the fremen are not just pawns in, yeah. in this narrative that they're actually given a fair amount of power and mm-hmm. so that's sort of what keeps it from being Merely a white savior, savior narrative. I will also say I found a couple of uh, kind of fun essays, sort of defending Dune on a feminist point, saying that the Ben Gazeret are actually good models of feminine power. I think I don't agree. I think that's really that's some, probably some essentialist stuff talking. Yes,
1: but Anna, you know? the tone of your voice is convincing me, so I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that one.
0: <laughs> and I actually, I will say, we I mean, I have to get started with the plot, but yeah. this book, I remember it had the same effect on me when I was 15, which is that I became so aware of all of my, like, tics. Your verbal tics? My verbal tics and also, like, the way I talk and even, like, meditation. I was med- I, I meditate fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. And um, my meditation's been different over the past few days <laughs> because I can't... <laughs> Because <laughs> I can't stop comparing it to the prana boonu whatever. <laughs> yeah
1: I have to say that there is rich material for a spoof of the B'nai Geseret, I guess, using like Valley girl up talk or what have you. like yeah. I, would, I would love to see that done, but you know that that's a subject for another uh, I another, w-
0: brief another story, podcast. which is, um I had a weird set of desires as a a kid which is that I I liked being a little punk rocker and you know I liked uh, being a nerd but also I really wanted to be on the cheerleading squad and I tried out (gasps) oh wow Uh and the thing is is that at some point someone told me your voice carries more if you pitch it low Hmm. and so I did my entire cheerleading routine pitching my voice as low as possible and I probably sounded like I was trying to sound like a dude because it was like go team i didn't make
1: it oh
0: i know i, was, I want it's to know the, the
1: alternative timeline where you made it as a cheerleader like what would have happened as a result
0: uh, i don't think i would have gone to ufc Ooh. that's my prediction and when i take the spice
1: <laughs> and look at
0: all the different waves that emanate out from that nexus mm-hmm. i believe that i probably wouldn't have gone to ufc anyway dan so much fun to catch up yes Let's get to the plot.
1: All right. Let us move to the plot. Act one, why would you leave Kaladin? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so to set the stage, uh, Dune takes place about, I think, 11 or 12,000 years in the future. Man has expanded to the stars, but without the assistance of artificial intelligence, thanks to the Butlerian Jihad, which is an interesting term that I've heard used a lot and is referenced in Dune, but like sort of talked about for like a paragraph at most, and then we never talk about it again. But essentially, the Butlerian Jihad means that there's no AI and no like advanced. Uh, no computers. computers. Yeah, no computers either. in this world. The galaxy is ruled by a quasi-feudal arrangement consisting of, I believe, the Emperor, the Great Houses, the Spacing Guild, the Bene uh, Gesserit, as we said, and so forth. Our protagonist is one Paul Atreides, the son of a Duke and his concubine Jessica, who's also a member of the Bene Gesserit. The Duke has agreed to relocate his family and forces from the relatively posh world of Caladan. Oh,
0: relatively.
1: Yeah. I didn't know that.
0: <laughs> I I don't know. We don't get that much description of Caladan. actually. It sounds super fucking posh, I would say. Yeah, exactly. Like, especially if you're talking relative to Dune. Right. (laughs) <laughs> yes, fair enough. <laughs> where the, the where the Great Plains would be relatively lush. You True, know?
1: fair enough. Which, yeah, um, but anyway, anyway they, the Duke's family has resided in Caladan for 26 generations, uh, but they have agreed to move to the desert world of Arrakis, the sole repository of the spice called Melange. The spice is addictive, but also has many other attractive qualities. It prolongs life and also enables celestial navigation for all of the Spacing Guild uh, and their transports. Arrakis had previously been ru- uh, under the rule of the Harkonnen, but the agreement is is that the Duke will take over. This seems like a promotion, so everyone's happy, right? No, 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 no. Except everyone thinks it's a trap, including the Duke himself, and it is very clearly a trap. The question is whether the Duke and his lieutenants can turn the tables on the Harkonnen and their allies and suss out who in their entourage might be the sort of moles that are trying to bring the Duke down. Before they depart from Caladan, however, uh, Paul is tested by the Reverend Mother, who is the sort of I think chief of the Bene Gesserit? I'm not entirely sure, because it is believed that he might be the fulfillment of a prophecy, as he has dreams that appear to be premonitions and could actually be the one man who has the same properties mm-hmm. of the Bene grumble, Gesserit. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Yeah, 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 yeah. Paul passes this test, which is called the Gom Jabbar. This is not surprising as he has been trained in the ways of the Bene Gesserit by his mom and in the ways of the Mentat by his father's advisor.
0: The Mentats being, who who are the...
1: The Mentats being, I believe, like, sort of, you know, chief of staff-like people who are trained to think like computers, is the way I would put it. Anna, I kind of felt about Herbert's world-building the same way I did about Ursula K. Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness, which is, it was a bit of a slog at first, and it grabbed me more as I went along and as I, like, adapted to the, you know, the language that was being used. I'm curious if you had the same response. You know, it, it...
0: What surprised me rereading this was how good it is. <laughs> <laughs> meaning, meaning, when I was a kid, I enjoyed this, the same things about it as I did about the fucking Fountainhead, which is like there's a really awesome protagonist who's like a hero who beats all the odds and tells, you know, tells everybody to fuck off, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the thing that teenagers like about these kinds of books. Yeah. And that's yeah. sort of what I thought I kind of liked about it mm-hmm. was also that a teenager is a hero in it. Right, right. While I think of myself as being a perceptive teen, I did not remember it being as well written mm-hmm. as it is. It's incredibly well written, and I found the first chapters not so much a slog as just—I'm trying to make a distinction between slog and slow going. I don't know quite what I mean, except that it doesn't well, move a, very fast. Yeah,
1: no, there's, there's but, it's, I, it's but slow. I was like
0: fine reading it, but it wasn't like Ugh, God, got to keep going, you know. I
1: mean, you're wondering when there. I, I was like, wait. I guess when I was reading the first chapters, like, all right. You're setting the table. I get it. Let's get to Arrakis and get the plot moving. And But but that said, the world building is significant and it's important. And so, like, I, it's not that I didn't like it. It was just that it took me – there were a couple of tries where I'm like, okay, I'm going to read 10 more pages. You know, more.
0: here's here's another difference, I think, for me. Also, I, I honestly think, at least in the movie, the Lynch movie, they call it Arrakis, by the way. Arrakis? Arrakis. How is I'm it supposed to be? Sure? For,
1: is it Arrakis? I don't, I'm don't. i not even sure. You said
0: – said, you were saying uh, – I don't know what you were saying. Oh, I don't know. We'll both say what we say, yeah, and yeah. one of us will be closer to right, and then you guys can argue about it in the Discord. Fair enough. Ooh. So, rereading it, I was struck by how the Caladan stuff is actually pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it seems like he's taking his time, but it is really integral to the plot. And if you take a perspective that, like, this isn't a waste of time, you know, like, this isn't just table setting, like, this is a little more than that, I think it goes a little bit smoother. I will say so. The thing,
1: know. the thing I did like. And so what I'm saying is like yeah. the
0: suggestion that probably everyone has that this is a book about Dune, right? Sort of makes you feel like that whole first section is like not right. the
1: point. The thing I will say is that what the first section does very well, and also the first, the first we'll talk about a little bit when he gets to Arrakis, is that. What what Herbert does is yeah these are all pretty smart people that he's talking about by and large and yet they're smart people that are not omniscient and indeed they make mistakes there are blind mm-hmm. spots that they all have and like that's a that's a tough thing to pull off actually and so in the, you know it 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 it's a contrast to let's say Ender's Game where Ender is just you know the uber yes. basically yeah and so in that sense it was it was it felt more grounded and so that I did enjoy
0: and I also think that the stuff on Caledon gives you. An appreciation for the strangeness of, of dune especially for jessica and, and how out of her element she is and the i read reading this again my admiration for her hmm. r- really increased oh that's interesting i mean even though she's a willing participant in a eugenics program because <laughs> um, <laughs> she's hates every minute of this you know like she's just miserable yeah and she's doing it for her son right you know and her love and i think there's you know that's there's heroism there yeah that's true so
1: Okay, let's, let's move, move on. on. Yes, let's move on to Act Two: Trouble on Thirst Trap Planet Zero. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> that's
0: you know what—that's actually really good, Dan. Thank that's, you. I was pretty. I pleased just have with to pause. Way. Like that's that's good. Okay. I was pleased moving that.
1: On. Okay. Uh, so the Duke Leto and his entourage arrive on Arrakis. The Duke, not being an idiot, knows that he is the target of plots and tries to build alliances with the spice smugglers, along with the Fremen, a nomadic desert tribe that are reputed to be legendary warriors and hate the Harkon in, you know, guts like you would not believe. They know that there's a traitor in their midst, the Duke, and suspicion starts to fall on Lady Jessica. Whoops, the traitor was actually the Suk Dr. Wellington Yue, a fact that none of the Duke's boys had figured out in time. Yue sabotages the shield uh, that guards the Duke's palace that allows the Harkonnen and the Emperor's feared uh, Sardaukar troops into the Duke's redoubt. He arranges, Dr. Yue, arranges for Jessica and Paul to escape into the desert and gives the Duke a poison tooth to kill the person who turned him the villainous Baron Vladimir Harkonnen and if you think that like I'm being cartoonish and calling him the villainous Baron Vladimir Harkonnen oh boy
0: speaking of cartoons yeah
1: like this is it's just like this is a villain not his
0: best writing not his best characterization yeah (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, the Duke does attempt to kill the villainous Baron, Vladimir Harkon. I think that's how I'm going to say it from now on in. Yeah. You know, crunches on the tooth, but only kills himself and the Baron's Mentat. The Baron expropriates the Duke's old Mentat, and Leto's other senior officers sort of scatter into these sort of smuggling trades of Erykus. Paul and Jessica do escape to the desert, uh, which is pretty treacherous territory. Water is everything there. Oh yeah, by the way, there are giant sandworms prowling about, which is also what makes the spice mining relatively difficult. Plus, Jessica is pregnant, a fact that Paul intuits, as the spice appears to be enhancing his considerable mental gifts. Paul and Jessica are saved by a Fremen tribe, and Paul proves his fighting and leadership medal and wins the trust of the Fremen. Anna, while well, I like this section of the novel, and this is really exciting because it's like the, the sort of turning of the tables and you see this sort of massive assault on Arrakis, and I appreciated that that Herbert really does stuff his book with strategic and flawed leaders. I still don't think that the grand strategy of the, the barren villainous... <laughs> Phyllis Harkonnen <laughs> makes any fucking sense whatsoever, okay? So basically, they're trying to get rid of the Duke, and how do they do that? They put him in charge of the one planet that produces the spice that allows all of intergalactic commerce to operate. You know, there's a significant—and furthermore, you're doing this, you know, in a place where there's a significant rebel force, and you're going to put your political enemy in charge of this? I mean, two. To quote Robert Downey Jr., not a great plan.
0: I have a theory that might explain what they are thinking, which is they are planning on sabotaging Duke Leto. Well, right, yes. And and they're going to make him the bad guy on the planet. They're going to somehow slow down the spice trade, Mm -hmm. I think by bribing the guild Uh. and smugglers. There's a reference that the Harkonnens have stockpiled spice. Mm-hmm. Um, that's correct make yes a, make a killing on it when it becomes uh, less available good, good old market forces Okay, there. see
1: I read that as just like general like graft and corruption. So, okay.
0: I yeah. think that that's the plan. Now, what's weird is mm-hmm. they don't do that plan.
1: No, they don't. Like, <laughs> that was the other thing. Like so like you you know that like there's going you know there's going to be attack on the duke. You know that he like he's yeah. supposed to be taken out. And how do they do it? And that's also
0: weirdly not the 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 straight on attack yeah. by the baron and emperor's forces appears to be the one thing they haven't thought of. Right. <laughs> the House of Atreides. Yeah. Like, you're looking for the faints within faints within faints. But somehow, oh, they might just put a whole bunch of army folks on the planet and try to kill us. Right. Doesn't come up as a thing that they might need to guard against. But also, to
1: be fair, this is the other part I didn't quite get about this. The, the Presumably, the whole point of this plot was you were going to... Oh, actually,
0: you know what? I can rem- I remember why they might not have expected Harkonnen to do what he
1: Because did. it was a really stupid fucking move among other things, but yes.
0: Um, and also there's like this there's sort of this uh very delicate alliance among the great houses right. and they're not really supposed to attack each other. Yeah. So it is I actually I'll mention this because it's going to come up more, which is there's a lot of like really subtle politics mm-hmm. in this book. That's implied, like this whole, like, well, you're not supposed to go up against other houses, right. and that's why they might not do it. Yeah. Some of it seemed too subtle for me. <laughs>
1: like, <laughs> So, so I, I agree with you that in some ways that's what makes this more jarring for me, which is I think a lot of the po- – Herbert handles a lot of the politics and a lot of the diplomacy extremely well. Like, I, mm-hmm. as someone who, who reads this thing with a jaundiced eye, I was like, okay – this is this is pretty good. But it makes the sort of full-on assault and the like overarching strategy of how to to get rid of the Duke, it didn't make any sense to me, which is the whole point of this was the Duke was supposed to fall and no one was supposed to realize that the, yeah, that the Harkonnens
0: were behind and it, <laughs> particularly the emperor,
1: and like I'm pretty sure I don't know how communication and information gets around no, no, no. on this the galaxy. The emperor
0: was going to know about it because the emperor, but the secret, like his troops were supposed to be secret. Right.
1: No, the emperor was obviously in on it, but no one else was supposed to know that the emperor right. was in on it. Right. Yes. And yes. So yes. My point is, is that if you're, if that's your plan, if that, that's what you want the outcome to be generally speaking, a frontal assault by the Harkonnen and the Sardukar yeah. is not going to be the way to no. do that. So The, the
0: Sardukar were in Harkonnen uniforms. Right? Oh,
1: God. Yes. All right. I, now,
0: I think that's still a, not a very secure way of keeping that information. Yeah. <laughs> like, just putting them in different uniforms. Right. Apparently, since the Saddukar are, are supposedly, like, incredibly uh, proud of their exploits and, I don't know, might tell someone... Also, like, you mean, know there are Sardaukar
1: <laughs> tattoos. You know there are Sardaukar tats that indicate. Yeah. Indig- that so, and also, away.
0: everyone yeah. on the planet seems to realize right away. Yeah. That it's this. <laughs> that's
1: the other thing. Like, I, and I think part of this was was something that I wasn't sure about, which is it was very unclear how information would you know could get out of, of this sort of situation, and like you know that was left yeah. unstated. And I think, frankly, was sort of Frank Herbert not like that was a delicate plot point that he couldn't really talk about because if you yeah, do, it's, it's
0: it's funny because the, the the stuff that follows that is less. I keep calling that first part an intricate set of politics or mm-hmm. a subtle set of politics. And maybe what I'm really saying is it's not well done. <laughs> it's not that it's too subtle or too intricate. It just parts of it don't make sense. And that's why I, it feels hard to follow. I think it's
1: frustrating because honestly. He, because it,
0: later on, the stuff is much more easy to follow. Yeah. It's still interesting. Right. And there's feints within feints within feints, yeah. as they keep saying but it's easier to follow because it makes sense.
1: In some ways, you know? I, I think what we both are reacting to is the same thing, which is, and, and I, this is where it's it's because Herbert does one thing really well and then the other thing doesn't quite make sense. The thing he does really well is you, you realize the Duke is, it's an interesting structure. The Duke and his family, who you automatically identify with, they're going somewhere and it's a trap. And it's a question of, will they manage to turn the tables on the trap or will the trap be sprung? And like, you know, how is that right. going to play out? That's all done incredibly subtly. And then suddenly poof, it's like, you know, oh, it turned out they didn't realize who the defector was.
0: It's not so much a trap as a frontal attack, yes. which, you know, is not a trap. Right. That's not, I don't think, technically a trap.
1: Right, and there's <laughs> a lot of loose talk about how they need to make the Duke die, but, like, no one knows how this happens. Or, like, it's it's got to be, it's got to look like an accident, as it were, or what have you, and, yeah. like, yeah, you know what? It's not going to look like an accident if you send your entire fucking force to invade the goddamn planet. That's not how this works. So, that-
0: uh, oh, the the other thing that is weird mm-hmm. is that you pointed out the the fremen are a noted like you know yeah. fighting force. They keep having the harkonnens dismiss the fremen, right? And as a reader, you're like, they're the only people that don't know. Yeah that this is this incredibly savage right. you know I, and I don't shouldn't say savage be careful with the word savage this incredibly fearsome mm-hmm group of people who are disciplined and all fought, all trained to fight from, you they're swaddling clothes, Mm -hmm. and it's the only Harkonnens who are like, ah, they're just a bunch of sand folks, and we're not gonna pay attention to them, so that seems weird. Yeah, and I I guess... And the plot turns on this, by the way. Right! I mean, the plot turns on the Harkonnens being so racist against the Fremen (laughs) that they can't even conceive of them as doing well in battle.
1: Right, and again, like, part of the reason you wind up rooting for the Duke is for the few brief moments that the Duke actually is in control an hour, because he, like, he's clearly exercised... and again, this was something I thought Herbert did really well. You show how wise political leadership can actually win gains. You know, he really does win the trust of some people that would uh, that, that know they should not fall in with him because they also recognize the the trap that's being sprung. And so,
0: although I'm yeah. not sure, like if it's, really, I guess it's a <laughs> we can sort of compare this to 28 Days Later, maybe, mm. which is to say, yes, the Duke wins the allegiance of these people by being kind to them. Yeah. And honoring promises by being a know? decent
1: human being. And by yeah. being
0: a decent human being, yeah. like he, his leadership skills do not like fo- default to something along the lines of "I promise them women."
1: Ah, fair so. enough. <laughs> okay, true enough. True enough.
0: Anyway, uh, I think we need to move on. This is going to be. i Come on, the book is eight hundred pages long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is going to be a little bit of a bonus episode in and of itself. Let's say. <laughs> Come on!
1: All right. Act three. Act three. Paul becomes uh, Muad'Dib. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly,
0: but I always thought it was Mao Dib. Oh,
1: that makes sense. Especially since Mao Dib is supposed to be for mouse, basically. So yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's what I. Okay, we'll go with Mao Dib.
0: Anyway, we both have very different takes on the pronunciations of the names in
1: this book. So Paul takes the fremen name of Mao Dib, meaning mouse. He also marries Chani, a Fremen woman that he saw in his prophecies while he was still on Caladan, and they have a son, Leto Jr. Jessica agrees to become the Fremen's reverend mother by drinking the water of life. This has a profound effect on her unborn daughter, Alia, who winds up becoming super precocious. You know all those like precocious little girls like in movies? Just to take that to the nth power, and that's what this girl is like, because she's basically uh, been-
0: I believe the word uncanny would be the yeah. thing that Ooh, needs to apply here. That the works. Freudian sense yes. uncanny.
1: Paul learns that the Fremen can partially control the sandworms and are more numerous than anyone realizes and do have long-term plans to terraform Arrakis so that water is much more plentiful. And again, one thing that Herbert does extremely well in this is make you appreciate the the true water is life kind of feeling on a world in which water is incredibly scarce to the point where people are all wearing suits in which they can essentially keep their moisture within them because Mm -hmm. you don't want to lose any of it. Paul, in turn, teaches the Fremen, already a potent fighting force, the weirding ways of of battle. He also manages to reconnect with one of uh, his father's old henchmen, uh, Gurney Halleck. Meanwhile, the Baron appoints his idiot nephew, Robin, to run Arrakis, with the idea that he will be loathed, and then the Baron will be able to replace him with the more cunning nephew or child of Fade, Rautha. The Emperor, however, sends his minion, the Count Fenring, to let the Baron know that he needs to get his shit together and that there are real problems on Arrakis. The Baron finds this meeting unsettling. One of the more interesting themes in this section is that Paul recognizes the sort of jihadic fervor and... Herbert uses the word jihad, which is kind of extraordinary yeah. because, again, this book came out in 1965. It's written in the early 60s. This is not a word that it was sort of common term of art in, in the English language.
0: This is one of the reasons why there's a, the theory that he read that Sabres of Paradise uh, book. Yeah, um,
1: so. which makes sense. But So he recognizes the jihadic fervor among the Fremen, but he also deeply, deeply fears it. And it's very clear. He And, and in this sense, Paul reminded me – it's interesting that you say Kennedy – was one of the inspirations for for Paul, because the person you reminded me of here is Obama, who is someone who is a gifted leader who nonetheless fears the corrosive effects of charismatic leadership.
0: Well, Dan, they are both Muslim.
1: <laughs> <so>. Oh, <laughs> boo! <laughs> boo!
0: <laughs> Obama's not who I would have gone with, I guess, huh. um, in part because... You know, although maybe this means I'm just, I'm not giving Obama enough depth as a person hmm. when I say that, yeah. although to be fair, Obama does not let people find out much depth of him. He is, he is one of the most skilled politicians in the history of the world who seem like he is revealing things about himself, mm-hmm. but not actually telling us much at all, or rather only letting us see what he wants us to see. Right. Because what I was going to say about Paul is that his ambivalence about the jihad Mm -hmm. is really interesting. Yeah, Like he knows he must use that fervor to take back the planet, right? Mm -hmm. But he also sees the billions of deaths that could follow. Mm. And he, you know, he also knows perfectly well he could take himself out of the picture early on. Like, he could marry Shawnee mm-hmm. and then, like, just have his kid. He has a vision. He has at one point has a vision
1: Yeah, one of, of doing this. Uh, and honestly, one of the more, like, one of the best sci-fi elements of this book, I thought, is the idea that Paul repeatedly, is it Paul has to navigate between his memories, the present, and what, right. what I would guess is his sort of memories of what the future could be. And his memories of what the future could be are multiple. Because as you say, it's indeterminate. Yeah. So, yeah, that was really good. I like that. So
0: he could have, like, he's really scared of the jihad. Yeah. Like, you know what? as soon as he saw it coming, he could be like, you know what? I'm just going to be a nomadic <laughs> Furman and like settle down with Chani. Just and going to ride
1: my sandworm into the sunset, you know? Yeah, yeah. just
0: not going to play a part in it. That might have done it, mm. you know? And I, I guess what I'm saying also is that I see in Obama, I wish I saw more of what I think that the Republican, or sorry, I shouldn't say Republican, um, sort of the, the Trumpist class season, which is this incredibly manipulative guy I don't know. Like they see faints within faints within faints for Obama, right? Oh no, th- that's th- And and you and I don't believe that about him. We know that that's not actually how politics yeah. really works. works. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting. Like I think he's a lot like Paul in his suspicion of charisma.
1: Yeah. That's what it mostly was.
0: But we just don't know what he really thinks. I, like that's that's what I'm saying. I guess the way like, I
1: would put it is that like
0: Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Am I making am I making any sense at all how I'm saying yes, that? Yes, you you wish. You wish Obama had actually
1: his... been as Machiavellian as his enemies <laughs> thought he was. Or at
0: least we knew he was struggling with that. Right. Like
1: but I think we it, don't, you know. I guess the answer is, is that I always thought of I mean maybe that we disagree on this, but I think, you know, to the extent that Obama did show himself or showed aspects of his personality. The thing that I admire about Obama as a politician, and I think the I honestly think this makes him unusual among all the presidents in our lifetime, is that Obama was genuinely uncomfortable with power. And he was uncomfortable with the the ways in which you could get things wrong. And and if you really want to go like political theory on this, Michael Oakeshott talks a lot about the politics of doubt. And the thing about Obama is, is that he was always sort of a skeptic of the ability to actually exercise and marshal large numbers of people to do something. That he simultaneously liked it, but he also feared it. Uh,
0: Okay, okay, all right. Making, uh, I think, a very subtle distinction that maybe I shouldn't be making then, Mm -hmm. which is that he, I believe Obama to have been suspicious of power in the sense that he was not sure you could really get get it together to do shit. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. That he was suspicious of it in the way that I think you and I and many people who follow politics are, which is that there aren't feints within feints within feints. Right. Exactly. That's not how it works. You you cannot rely on sheer power to get things done. You cannot rely on sheer charisma to get things done. Mm -hmm. But he definitely tried to use it. He wasn't so suspicious of those things that oh, he no. didn't yeah, I, try to use them. Right, agree. Whereas, like, I guess when I read suspicion, like, I'm like, oh, that means you make you hesitant. He seemed not hesitant at all. Oh no, like, I think
1: he was. I mean, it use the
0: powers that he could, including charisma.
1: Yes, I, I guess the way I would put it is that he did use it, but I also think like,
0: oh, but he didn't feel great about it. But yeah, uh, you
1: know, but it, like, but this, maybe we're, I we're guess. getting too much into psychoanalysis. Yeah. Like, Obama let's, at this, let's
0: th- this is the end of the you know. Put Politician on the Couch comedy hour, yes. which is our other podcast.
1: <laughs> all right, let's move to Act 4, Better Call Paul. Paul sees the Harkonnen and Sardaukar forces amassing an orbit and the Emperor's presence on the planet. He sees a lot of these things. He does not see that those forces were going to raid his southern redoubt, capturing his sister and killing his son, Leto II. Behind the <laughs> mother of all sandstorms, Paul, his Fedakin... And uh, the rest of the Freeman forces overwhelm the enemy and capture the emperor's entourage as well as the baron. Paul has also, by the way, drunk the water of life himself uh, and lived to tell the tale, thereby fulfilling the prophecy that he is the, and I I swear to God I'm going to Massacre this name
0: I, no one actually knows how okay, to Okay
1: I'm going it. to say it's a
0: little known secret like the, no one there is no correct pronunciation The
1: Quisats Hatarak you know I this part of me that wants with the Semitic hold on let me do the Semitic version of this given where the the origins oh, are The Quisats yeah. Hatarak
0: I believe that probably is it, again the legend has there is no correct pronunciation Oh I
1: like that okay that's good
0: But I I like that last one All right
1: so. Paul demands that the Emperor abdicate and that he marry uh, Irulan, his daughter, thereby resolving the Galactic Conflict. The Emperor is not keen about this and the Baron is super not keen about this. But the Baron dies and Paul defeats Fade Rautha in combat. So it's a done deal, with Chani sticking on as his concubine. Paul wins! All the truthsayers, however, can envision the Jihad to come. Anna, I liked a lot of this book. I really enjoyed this more than I was expecting, to be honest. but. The villains are only fleshed out literally and not metaphorically would you agree with that
0: (laughs) yeah like i said i think the fat phobia stuff the the fat hatred was really tough to for me like cringy wise again this is something that our culture has sort of really getting in a popular way people are are only talking about recently so i think it if people were not as bothered by it as I was, I, I understand.
1: <laughs> I will say the one thing I did like, and I this is a weird thing, and I'm perfectly willing to be shot down on this. There's sort of a weird gender thing where, like, the Baron has to wear essentially the high-tech girdle, as it were, was a Oh yeah, no, yeah. I
0: think that's I, th- I think that's intentional. Well, yeah. somewhat intentional. Right. Like, I think he's a fim- he's a feminine. Right. You know? Okay. So it's it's two things. Like, he's grossly fat, right. and every time he comes on the scene, there is a description of his fatness. <laughs> Every single time. Like, I started to keep track of it. Okay, fair enough. Like, yeah. the, the, Herbert does not let him enter a room without <laughs> somehow referencing how fat he is. The, so, okay, fine. The fine. villainous
1: corpulent Baron von yeah. yeah. I,
0: I will add that one of my very favorite authors in the world, Stephen King, mm-hmm. used to do this a lot in his books as well. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just an easy kind of like, how do you make sure people know that someone is greedy and right. fat and you just make them fat, you know? Like, whatever. Maybe he would have written it differently today. I don't know. I also agree that, like, the villains are really fucking villainous, and there's no kind of... Yeah, unlike Stephen King, I will say, there is absolutely no redeeming quality to any of them. They're not complicated at all. Like, there's no sense of, like, oh, I see why this person is doing this. There's a human being underneath all this that's, like, struggling with something. Whereas, like, Paul... For instance, yeah. is our hero, but very complicated. Yeah, you know, very ambivalent. No, there's an early scene know? in
1: the book where, like, the Baron is literally explaining his. Pl- the Baron is monologuing his plot. Yeah, and like, yeah. it's like, I literally all I was waiting for was like Herbert to write, and then he twirled his mustache because, like, that was that yeah, yeah, was the yeah. level of which that was. Written. <laughs> you
0: know? yeah. I also will say though, um, Count Finring. Yeah for some reason left out at me as like kind of amusing in this this read like i kind of appreciated that although yeah. it bothered me that apparently he's a feminine way of talking uh. with all the ums and the errs
1: well he was the one like he was the one bad guy as it were who i found interesting yeah had a story yeah had a story yeah, and like he, he
0: was a bad guy with this interesting story. and i
1: love I, I i did love the conversation he had with the baron where it was very clear the baron is an idiot
0: Yes. Yes. That is like there's some parts of this that are really good yeah. politics, like good, subtle politics. Right. I guess again, those are places that where it makes sense.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, speaking of politics, Dan, I have a question for you. Go, Dan Go go ahead, Anna. Is there IR in this book?
1: Anna, there is a spicy amount of IR in this book. <laughs> um so there A
0: wormload, maybe? Yeah, there
1: we go. <laughs> So there is a little bit about preventive war, which uh, preventive war is a a problem in IR in which, generally speaking, a waning hegemonic power might choose to launch a war when they perceive a rising challenger could displace them. And in that scenario, it makes sense to launch a war while you are still the stronger party because you're worried that if you don't do anything, if you, you know, continue to try to accommodate, eventually the rising challenger becomes so powerful that you can't do anything. And we learn that the emperor apparently agreed to the attack on Arrakis because he fears that the duke had trained a fighting force potentially equal to the Sardaukar. That said, I'm not, again, I'm going to call bullshit on Herbert's use of this theory. It does not hold up uh, because in the description of what's going on, everyone acknowledges that the Sardaukar is a much larger fighting force than the duke's smaller force. And the only reason that this is a problem is because they send the duke to Arrakis. Which again seems like a tactically questionable move. Yes,
0: yeah, sorry. Because yeah. the o- the only thing that solves the problem of why he might be threatened by the duke yeah. is that he re- is that the emperor appears to be somewhat cognizant of the fact that the fremen could be a fighting force. Right. And so like But then don't send him to a exactly. Keep him on <laughs> Kaladan, all right? And Kaladan, he's going to be a pain in the ass. He's, he's not going to have uh, a there's going to be just a bunch of softies. Yeah, exactly. A bunch of decadent softies living on Kalidan. Yeah, There is some kind of uh, Lovecraftian suspicion of decadence in yes. this book,
1: by the way. Speaking of Lovecraftian, much yeah. like Lovecraft, uh, ah. this is a book... About the rise and fall of civilizations, and I think I rooted around in the internet, and I don't think Frank Herbert ever read a guy named Ibn Khaldun, who is a 14th century uh, Muslim writer, a sort of Muslim Machiavelli, as it were, um, who wrote uh, his magnum opus was a book called The Maqamat. But this is there's a lot of Ibn Khaldun in this book, so Ibn Khaldun argued that there was essentially a four-generation life cycle to civilizations in which, you know, a civilization starts out in a hard scrabble existence, sort of Bedouin, you know, life of the desert, and they're therefore hardened and toughened. And then as they move into the city they become somewhat softer, as it were. But that said, that that Ibn Khaldun believed that the harsh environmental conditions would lead to a society hardened by the climate and suffused with what is called group feeling, or I believe the Arabic word for this is sabiyah. I, I apologize profusely if I mispronounce it. As that society, however, shifts from the desert to urban life, they get soft, the group feeling inevitably dissipates, and this certainly fits the sort of description in Dune of what the Emperor is doing. Um, and it'll be, it will be—it would actually be interesting to know in sense of reading the future books whether this also applies to the Fremen, particularly if they actually succeed in terraforming Arrakis. I'm not entirely sure. There is also the theme of weaponized interdependence in this book.
0: <coughs>
1: yes, Anna? Professor. Yes, yes.
0: I seem to recall this coming up earlier in class.
1: It has, yes. Yes. Uh, right. When
0: we were discussing The Expanse. Allow me to try and remember <laughs> what that was. See if I can you know, score here. Excellent intervention. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. It had to do with the entry point to the other worlds. That is the choke point. The choke point
1: effect. Yes. So the ring gates in the, in the, in the expanse in this case, in the case of Dune, it is clearly the spice because it is very clear that without the spice, no one can travel from planet to planet because the Spacing Guild lacks the ability to to engage in navigation. So in the world of Dune, control of the melange is, the you know, network power. So, and I hate to repeat this theme, I don't get why <laughs> they set the trap for the Duke on this planet. This is the one planet you cannot afford to lose. So, really, really dumb.
0: Yeah, and then there's the this, this self-defeating. If, to the extent I think they had a plan, it would be self-defeating to, like you know, uh, put a chokehold on the supply of spice. Yeah. Like, why would you? It's just a
1: really high risk, stupid strategy is all I can say. It, it doesn't yeah, make any sense.
0: And it is funny. Like that sets this whole thing off. All the other politics that follow. Right. Are, are intelligible and make sense yes. and, are, and smart. Which,
1: I would say the best bits of this book as far as I'm concerned in terms of the politics is there really are is first-class stuff in this book on sort of individual leadership, on strategy, and on diplomacy. Honestly, like, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of it. There was one saying I love that, that, you know, Jessica repeats at various times, which is beginnings are such delicate times. And there's a lot of interesting sort of, you know, how does Paul win over the Fremen and how does the Duke try to win over the Fremen and and so forth. And even the negotiations between, you know, the Baron and the count and so forth. Like there, there's lots of stuff about that. The Duke's obsession with desert power is legitimately good and suggests that he was not actually an idiot and that that was the right way to think about it.
0: Uh, Although I will say in that particular passage, it, it, it's kind of a little pedantic. It's hilariously pedantic because he goes, we had air power and sea power and here on this planet, we have
1: desert power. Yeah.
0: Desert power. But it's the kind of thing a politician would say. Like,
1: I could t- if Joe Biden was on our case, he totally would have said that yes, is what I'm saying. Yeah,
0: so would think he was like, really get, dropping a bomb on you? Yeah, exactly, you know, yeah. it's
1: like wait till I blow see, in here your what mind. Exactly. Um, desert power. Right. Okay. But the Duke uh, and, then, and then Paul saying. I mean that literally. Yeah. 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 Joe Biden. <laughs> and the Paul and Paul saying the people who can destroy a thing, they control it. Legitimately interesting thing. I don't think it's entirely true, but there is a, a significant grain of truth to it. So there is actually a lot of really interesting IR in this book, and I'm very glad as a result that we did that, did this book for the podcast. But this then, of course, leads to another question that I have. Anna? Dan? Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this book?
0: <laughs> Dan, this is a book about monopoly capitalism. There that go. is what is is about, mm-hmm. right? And... I think we can sort of, again, so I have the opinion the authorial intent can be jettisoned at some points. But I will really say, mm-hmm. like, I think it, you don't have to kind of go postmodern here no. to say that whatever he intended, this is a critique of monopoly capitalism. Yeah. I found a quote on Twitter. I do not remember who said it, but it it is apropos. Every Marxist I know has put more energy into trying to get me to read Dune than Das Kapital. And... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I like the idea of Dune as the gateway drug in the capital. In and the it,
0: there's a reason why, if you were if you, you wanted to turn turn your friends, you might have them read Dune mm-hmm. rather than Das Kapital. Although Das Kapital is pretty well written, and I think that yeah, it's impossible to read this book without thinking, you know, and seeing illustrated like what happens and you know when you are you live and die by the market. Mm-hmm. I also think it's really interesting, and again, intention or not, uh, that having spice be the commodity. Mm-hmm. Does harken back to real world imperialism, as you know. Mm-hmm. The spices and, and you know exotic agriculture products are real things that yeah. that people fought wars over that that people were enslaved over. Although I you know? I mean I will
1: say I think it is generally agreed that the the spice in the book is really sort of supposed to be a, a metaphor for oil in terms of the. Well, the,
0: yeah, but I also think it's interesting that it's like I want to just remind people. Oh that, no, no, no I, I agree
1: with that, but like <laughs> but there's a there's yeah.
0: a there's a historical like rhyming going on. But
1: again, here. mostly yeah. I'm actually legit impressed that Herbert in the early '60s wrote a book pointing out. Resource yeah. dependence on oil, which was not something that anyone was really thinking about at the time.
0: And uh, I also, for my final performance, here, <laughs> no, sorry. and for my my final trick, <laughs> I want to point out that spice is capitalism. Dude.
1: Whoa.
0: It is pervasive.
1: Whoa, my mind is blown right now.
0: Mind-altering. Mm. Addictive.
1: Actually, no, this is, this is a legitimately great point because one of the things I'm intrigued by in the book is that I don't know about you, I wasn't sure I wanted any spice when I was reading this yeah, book. Yeah,
0: and I'm also not entirely kidding when I say it that yeah. way. It is sort of like the perfect metaphor in a way, yeah. and and why it works as for oil as right. well, which is not so much mind-altering, but it's pervasive and addictive. But no, but Herbert you makes know. it
1: very like, you know, Herbert, the, the discussion of spice in the book is fascinating because he makes it very clear, A, it's addictive, and if you have too much of it and then are cut off, you will die, and yet it's clearly integral for the entire, like, galactic economy, as it were, but like, I, the way he talks about it, Made it such that it was like you know no this this seemed like I I prefer coffee to spice um, is the way I would put it
0: but there is spice coffee there it. we go actually that's the one thing that I was like I wonder what that's like is that like a chai what what would that taste like I think it probably would be chai yeah. that's just my guess. Yeah you remind me yeah. as far as like your suspicion of taking spice and how might you not you might want to not get addicted right. to it the baron is really proud of how he gets the duke's mintat this subtle poison yes. that if he withdraws the antidote he'll die right. why not just make him addicted to something or just poison him later yeah. like there's this weird thing of like he thinks he's being so smart, but also not telling the person that you're not poisoning yeah. them.
1: Also, he's a mentat. You that don't think seems he's, weird. Also, he's a mentat. <laughs> you don't think he's going to figure this out for fuck's sake? I mean, you know. It,
0: and also, it turns out to have no meaning whatsoever. Right. Like, yeah.
1: No. It, it, that was a weird <laughs> thing where it was like, okay, see Chekhov's gun? Chekhov's gun is right here. And then it doesn't yeah. matter. Like,
0: and he, he dies he on camera. he gestures towards it multiple times. He's like, let me tell you about my brilliant plan right. about this mentat, you know. No, the
1: only, and, the only thing the Baron does that I actually did think was clever was the idea that he was going to Appoint the really dumb nephew, so with the idea that then right. Fade that would come in and like seem as the more competent. Which nephew. Which
0: seems like that was sort of what the so-called trap was
1: with the dude. Except the 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 same guy, the dumb nephew, yeah, know, was a ruler just, of Arrakis it, beforehand as well. So, yeah, so like yeah, it made it no just, sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Okay.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: nope, nope. Dan, we we have to sort of wrap up our sort of general critique of the book yes. and get right to the point. Okay. Is Dune mm-hmm. canon, or is it fodder?
1: Anna, my vote is for mostly, not entirely, but mostly canon. First of all, it, just from a politics perspective, I was, as I said, I was legit impressed with Herbert's book because, for a book in the early '60s, this is incredibly prescient on resource politics, on environmental politics, and actually a little bit on the politics of the Middle East, which is, you know, basically how do how do a subjugated people in a part of the world where there is an extremely valuable commodity, react, and so there's a lot of stuff that almost seems banal if you read it now because you've, you're familiar with this terminology. That I'm sure in the 1960s might have seemed particularly you know weird or strange, and you know I think you get props for 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 that. Also, I really liked it because this is not a book about the tech per se, and indeed, like Herbert clearly sets it up with things like the Butlerian Jihad and so forth takes pains to avoid much talk of tech. And, like, even to the extent of, like, a t- he talks about atomic weapons and atomics, you know, but also basically sort of says, yeah, but no, you know, it's mutually sure destruction, so that's not really going to happen and, and so forth. And, I, again, I, I like that part of it. It's really, it's about how humans react to struggle and constraint and so forth.
0: He basically hand waves tech. Yeah away like he just sort of he gets out of having to like make up technology by being like yeah just uh, there's none. right and there's
1: ways in which like tech can be done well like the expanse is incredibly good on like this is what the tech part is and that's important but like I, i didn't have a problem with what herbert did there but also like you know having read it i can now see dune's legacy everywhere in terms of stuff we've talked about and stuff we will talk about so like i can't you can't see firefly now without thinking about dune the expanse i think is also you know the whole idea of mars terraforming itself made me think of Arrakis, and even things like game of thrones you know to some extent like had i think aspects of dune in it so that that's definitely all canon in terms of fodder yeah so you know not surprisingly the gender stuff could have been handled (laughs) a little bit better um you know it's not i don't want to defend it but i'm like it wasn't awful it was just so goddamn stereotypical and essentialist that I I found it not terribly interesting but again like again in terms of Firefly the idea of like concubines as being you know escorts or or being like valued I I sort of thought about Lady Jessica there you know whatever so but not the biggest thing in the world and also as I said the the baron being gay and fat seemed like a big fat stereotype for for lack of a better (laughs) way of putting it so yeah Anna what about you? canon or father?
0: uh I thought this was an either-or question, Dan. Um, So I'm just going to say canon. But yes, with reservations. Right. I think you have to mention eugenics as a problem here. All this talk of race consciousness, which I'm willing to forgive is just a weird term in a way. Yeah, that was He's talking about the human race. Right, exactly. But there are two eugenics programs happening in this book. One is the Bene
1: Gesserit. Gesserit,
0: Gesserit. And then the Fremen actually are pretty fucking eugenicist about their own people like they have this attitude towards life that's like weakest go yeah that's true no more yeah. like we will not support anyone that cannot support themselves yeah and also
1: like the whole point of like every the, oh this person's dead all right let's divvy up the water you know like that was gross yeah
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. so i mean it's not as aggressive as the benay uh gazeret yeah. but it's pretty it's a pretty only the strongest survive kind of look at The world. This might
1: be also, like, it's not that I disagree with you, but I think part of the, this might be where I'd like, it's just bad writing by Herbert because, like, I know that all the criticism of Dune is like, there's eugenics, the Bene Gesserit is like a practicing eugenics, and yet in the actual text, it wasn't something that I. It's referenced, but it's like not.
0: Eh. Oh no! No, I'm not denying that
1: it's it's clearly there, but it was never fully explained to me, or I didn't feel it's not
0: explained. But like, there is reference to breeding a lot. Like, again, once you're kind of looking for it, like. Um, at some point, I believe it is Paul talking to Stilgar, mm-hmm. and he's so impressed by Stilgar, he says, whence comes such breeding,
1: oh, God. you know,
0: <laughs> like, which suggests. Yeah, fair
1: enough. <laughs> Actually, I feel <laughs> bad because I didn't.
0: Everyone in this novel thinks that the way that you get to be smart or whatever is because your parents right. you know and i feel bad but by the way because you... i didn't
1: mention Stillgar in the plot summary and he's actually a really interesting character so that was yeah. he
0: is a very interesting character yeah. yes you should feel bad dan you should <laughs> and the, the gender essentialism is i mean the whole fucking plot mm-hmm. is based on the fact that women can't do this one thing this one thing they can't do that for some reason a man can do <sighs> yeah and I, th- that also, but if you start to question that, you start to question the whole program because it's like, why couldn't you just figure out how for how, how to get a, breed a woman that could do it? You know? <laughs> yes. Like, what exactly is, like, the Y chromosome thing here that is keeping a woman from doing it? I'm pretty it? sure
1: Alia could have done it, by the way, if she had grown they, up. They yeah.
0: imply that it's fear, by the way.
1: Yeah. Fear is the mind They're, killer. Women are just too
0: scared to go there. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I mean, I, I disagree. I think there's... I think women are made of pretty fucking sturdy stuff. If you have to bleed once a month and push out things that go on to grow to be six feet tall, like come on, I like, am, I
1: am too scared to even like mildly yeah. from that. I'm gonna agree, yeah.
0: Um, but on the canon side, yeah, it's just it is just really good. Yeah. Like I've said, like it's just really well written. I have tried to read some of the sequels; they are not as good. Yeah. Um, in my Opinion, although those are ones that are just slow going for me and maybe I'll try harder. Now, I wanted to read a couple of the lines that I particularly liked. The undemanding emptiness of her words helped restore some calm. Mm. And I just like the undemanding emptiness of her words is a real powerful phrase. Mm. And then this is about Jessica. She felt the chill of the price on their heads. Which is, again, just very... I'm not reading and, and then there are longer passages about the desert which are beautiful, yeah. you know. It's one of the most vivid books I've read in a long time in genre especially. I feel like a lot of genre writers you get to lean on tropes a lot in describing stuff like oh it's a spaceship, you know, like it's a desert, whatever. And I mean Herbert clearly loved ecology and the environment and he thought a lot about the different kinds of sand. You know, and the different colors they would be, and as you say, and it makes it
1: interesting. His po- that, that makes his politics kind of interesting because it's it's rare that you combine libertarianism with with I guess environmentalism.
0: Well, there is actually a long history of environmentalism, libertarianism, and eugenics that is you know mm. uh, has to do with the Pacific Northwest, uh, which, as I'm sure you know, like the state of Oregon was founded as a white state, yes, um, but also very much an a, a environmentalist mm-hmm. settlement. So anyway fun stuff to read about there if you're curious and again this is ultimately a very satisfying indictment of power and capitalism you know like it's funny because I realized at some point in my life that Paul wasn't a hero like even without rereading it like just having more life experience and rethinking who my heroes were and also having had the experience of rereading the Fountainhead at some point being like oh Anna (laughs) oh 13 year old Anna poor thing (laughs) like <laughs> <laughs> No, I <laughs> what <were> you thinking? <laughs> um so I said something on uh the discord about how like I don't know I think uh, Frank Herbert's the only person that doesn't realize that that Paul's a monster and now I know because I've also no find out more about the you know the sequels. He knows Paul is a oh, monster. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think Anyone with some degree of subtlety can can see that in this book, mm. you know, that he may be a sympathetic monster.
1: No, you identify with Paul, particularly but, in the first yeah, half of the book, but but but, 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 but no, 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 like sorry, yeah. as someone who has not read any of the sequels and I'll talk about this in a second, but like someone who's not read them, I was like, yeah, this is okay, this seems like a happy ending, it's not going to be a happy ending. That was that was the Well,
0: also when he starts like they 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 actually at first I th- assumed that it was sort of you know uh, inflated legend that the Fremen were you know uh, making their war drums out of the skin of their enemies and mm-hmm. putting pi- putting pikes on the heads. But it turns out it sounds like that's true. That is actually what they're doing, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is gross. Yes. <laughs>
1: you know? well, yes. And yeah, and human <laughs> in some ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Dan, do you hear that? <laughs> uh, actually, now, now I'm doing like rapping. <laughs> <laughs> What I meant to do was imitate the sound of debris. Yes. Pinging off of our, our ship here, our, our, our podcast ship. We've entered the debris field. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything you want to mention that we haven't already talked about? Yet?
1: Just two small things. The first is, is that one of the odder things about the book is the, there are quotes from the, in the beginning of each of the chapters, which I think are told from like future histories of the events that we are reading in real time and they kind of seem like spoilers to be honest like for, <laughs> in the sense of like what as i was reading it was like oh okay so paul's clearly gonna win and like yeah so like you know that was a little bit spoiler alert which i wasn't crazy about and the second thing is i'm honestly not sure whether i need to read the sequels or not like should i read the next one because it, it's my understanding is, is that the quality really starts to deteriorate, but like, would just reading the next one where I assume Paul turns into a bloodthirsty dictator be worth like sort of being the mirror image of this one? And I'm honestly not sure. So,
0: yeah, spoiler alert for the rest of the Dune series. Yeah, he apparently does turn into a, a bloodthirsty dictator. And also, his grandson actually becomes a spice worm somehow. Becomes like, a spice a real- worm? yeah i don't know it was like in one of the essays that i read that was making this argument that that herbert is not really defending again he said his politics are weird because he he doesn't seem to be offering a defense of capitalism at all no 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 no. you know (laughs) like he seems i i think his rather jaffy idea is this kind of communal life that the fremen have right like that would be his ideal way of Mm. exist. his economy I i think would be like we share and share alike except the your water is the tribes, but as far as my debris, I thought that Peter, the mintat of the Baron, being actually not too smart, yes, <laughs> um, was kind of fun because he's depicted as being a genius mm-hmm. and I, it, that doesn't really like figure shit out, which I kind of liked. It's it's good to have the non competent villains sometimes. <laughs> yes, I could have done without the frequent reminders of how bad the Fremen smell, mm. like. I felt like, okay, all right, I got it. You know, like, not a lot of water in the desert. They're not taking baths. Okay. You know, like, we don't need to hear, like, the smell of excrement hit (laughs) his nostrils or whatever. Like, all right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Also, they have bat carrier pigeons or something yeah
1: i was like i I kept thinking about it like ravens from like game of thrones or owls from. but except
0: they appear to actually wish they They actually communicate vocal
1: (laughs) apparently people speak back or like i wasn't yes yes
0: or i think there's something in one of the appendixes i think that appendices um that the you you can briefly change like the vocal structure of the bat like becomes able to speak English so it just like echoes back the thing that the person said I don't know I would have liked more detail And I basically. confess
1: I did not like, actually read all the appendices I apologize <laughs> I didn't do the work.
0: and then yeah I guess I just want to say again that Lovecraftian thing is something I hadn't noticed before mm-hmm. there's a, it's many asides to decadence <laughs> being very bad yeah shouldn't have decadence um but speaking of decadence hot sci-fi summer this is we're gonna be decadent dan summer. it's gonna be we're gonna indulge ourselves oh, this is gonna be some fun stuff yeah, there is are. no yeah. slog in <laughs> hot sci-fi summer exactly. and we are starting with like i said uh, some marvel universe stuff black widow and then loki i am enjoying loki very very much <laughs> and i would like to actually point out i was going to do this earlier that now we have um uh loki is also part of hot sci-fi queer summer
1: i guess so that's because true because
0: it is now canon that he is bi yes, that's correct I believe that's not been canon before. I think it's just been sort of implied that he's a hedonist, which is also kind of a weird thing that people just think about bisexual people that like, oh, they just like everything. <laughs> and it's probably a little more complicated than that. And I actually think they they kind of, they allow that existence in this. It's not actually in the, in the I'm sorry to go on on this, but I'm thinking about it because it's interesting. It is, the way they gesture at it isn't that he's a hedonist. It's actually that he just has both kinds of lovers. Yes, you know? yes. If you have seen that episode, sorry if you haven't seen that episode, mm-hmm. but I, that's only the tiniest of spoilers. Right. Given
1: we'll be talking about it in a few weeks, though.
0: Yes, and then we have "Victory is Greater Than Death," mm-hmm. and then there's a whole bunch of other stuff which I promise I will post to the Patreon so people can start getting excited. There's a lot of movies and TV shows because I will say we've pretty much our hot sci-fi summer. But like we have actually indulgence. pretty much
1: sketched out the rest of the calendar year in terms of what we're doing. So you know,
0: we have, although we reserve the right to you know do something different I was mm-hmm. watching the pretty terrible tomorrow war I was going
1: to talk about night. that like I, I am so I'm only like a third of the way through it but I was wondering if we needed to do a special episode and also I
0: we might a little this
1: is like a, there's a small part of it wants to do fast and furious nine because apparently they go into space at one point in fast and furious nine all
0: right I think maybe like all right listeners we're Dan and I are going to talk about maybe talking about the tomorrow war <laughs> just because I think it would be fun okay. we could do like 15 minutes yeah And that is actually, I will say, for patrons, uh, we are planning on doing more of that kind of thing, of doing just really short episodes for patrons only Mm -hmm. uh, because there's something that Dan and I would probably talk about anyway.
1: (laughs) And if we're going to talk about it, you get to listen that way.
0: Might as well have you guys luck out on the listening Mm -hmm. end of that. And then, uh, Dan, could you remind them what are some other reasons they might want to become patrons?
1: Again, you get access to the Discord channel, which is a bunch of really groovy people that I only occasionally interact with, but that Anna does more. And more importantly, they interact with each other. And so it's a nice little community. You also get uh, early access to, of course, all of the episodes. And if in some of the higher contribution levels, you get pretty decent swag, is my understanding.
0: Yes. And of course, if we get to 250 paying patrons, which we got to 100, I feel like not not that slowly. Right. Like, it happened, and now I'm looking at the patron <laughs> account, and it's really, really... It feels like we're, we're maybe topping out or something. But come on, guys. No. If you Even if you, you can't afford to be a patron, actually, yourself, maybe one of your friends or family can? <laughs> like
1: Maybe you can find patronage to oh, become a patron. Be, you,
0: or you could join up. <laughs> there you Who go. knows? Yeah. Like, I offer that idea can somehow it's split, not a, split a patron. I'm going to stress
1: it's not a lot of money. You can be a patron for as little as $3 a month, so...
0: And, and we are and we are very much not making money. No.
1: <laughs> One final excellent reason to become a patron is that if you become a patron, you will help us support Karen and, more importantly, make it possible for Karen to keep her dog Alwyn full of kibble.
0: Yes. And, again, I will actually say in a little more seriousness, if you can't afford to, to, to be a patron, that's fine. Everyone has priorities mm-hmm. and maybe two politics wonks talking about science fiction is not a high priority but you still like the show rate and review us um do tell your friends and neighbors Mm -hmm. we just love that people care (laughs) and and that want to hear this so very much appreciate everyone who's listening right now for sure and um, we're excited about doing more with this show and we're excited about hot sci-fi summer and dan until next time
1: keep this channel open for more